0: Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. And Linda hit the nail on the head when she opened by saying we are family. We talk a lot about the church being family, and I'm really glad to be with you, my family, this morning. Uh, before I get into the sermon, I just want to give you a little family update. A lot of you know that my wife's dad, Steve, was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of October. Um, very aggressive form of cancer in, 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 as recently as August, he was doing 100-mile bike rides. Um, He was diagnosed in October. He developed a cough in September. Didn't think much about it, but it kept getting worse, and his body kept getting weaker, and then he was diagnosed with cancer in mid-October, and uh, has been fighting that, battling that the last couple months, and went home to be with Jesus yesterday. So, So many of you have been praying for us and supporting us and bringing us meals and watching our kids and all of that and I just want to say thank you. It's so good to be a part of a church family. Brittany and I feel so loved and supported by you guys. Um Brittany and I were with him yesterday when he took his last breath. So it was really sweet for us to be there and um yeah, I just want to thank you guys for supporting us. If you could pray for Brittany and her mom Terry right now. So my father-in-law Steve was a pastor of a church in Vermilion South Dakota, a, a church about the same size as ours, and um, he was the lead pastor there, and so this morning, they're there kind of shepherding the church through losing their senior pastor in the course of diagnosed with cancer just five months ago and passing away. Um, So, if you could pray for them, that would be great. Um, Brittany's pretty, uh, she's rock solid. She is just the godliest woman I know, and um, but it's emotional and tender for her to be there and to walk through that. So, um, actually, Mike, would you mind just praying for Brittany and for Hillside Community Church, and um, then for me as I preach? Too, I want to preach God's word and not like get caught up in my own emotions about my father-in-law passing away. Um, and God's got a great word for us this morning about family, and so I want to do that. But if you could pray, absolutely, I almost great.
1: came up just to grab the microphone. <laughs> thank pray. you, yeah. thank you. Yeah, let's pray together. Father, we are uh, grateful this morning as we picture Steve running to you, and embracing you, and with your son and the spirit surrounding him, and we do celebrate uh, his home going, but uh, his family is left, his church is left, and so we, we ask for, for Brittany and for Terry, her mom, and, and the family, that your hand of peace would be on them, that they would find their strength in you, that they can grieve and rejoice um, at the same time. And we pray for Terry and and Brittany right now as they they meet with Hillside Church, that they would minister and be ministered to. Um, In this, Lord, we ask that your name would be glorified. Um, I do pray for for Andrew right now as he uh, preaches your word, uh, that you will give him joy, that you will give him a clear mind. Uh, I'm sure his body and mind is... And soul is worn out and so we ask for an extra boost of energy for him by your spirit Uh, we give you glory in the name of Jesus amen amen
0: thank you Mike I debated if I should preach or not today and both Brittany and I talked about it and thought I really should come and preach because I think there's nothing more healing than God's word and the text for today is really all about family I mean, family. every family has a unique way of doing life, right? Every family has a certain formation, a certain, certain norms to that family, and nothing highlights this more than getting married. And those of you who aren't married yet, you can think back and think to friends. Like as you were growing up, you went to a friend's house and everybody, family, family does things differently, right? Some families, they eat dinner and they sit down at the dinner table and they, they talk the entire dinner and maybe you went to some of your friend's house or maybe you were the house where it's like turn on the TV and some families eat dinner in front of the TV. We all have different ways of doing things. I learned this when I married Brittany, that our families are very different. My family, pretty much everybody in my family, I'm convinced, has ADHD. We can't sit still for very long. And so our dinners, we, we always did them together at the table, but they lasted about 20 minutes. And then we all got antsy, and we would get up and move around, and we would, like, go for family walks together and do different things together. But Brittany's family, when I married into her family, very different. Her family would sit at the table for, like, three hours and just talk. And one person would talk at a time. My family, everybody talks at the same time and talks over each other and conversation crisscrosses around the table. Her family, they're so respectful and so reasonable, and and they don't have ADHD. They just sit there, and this person talks, and everyone listens, and then this person responds, and everybody listens, and it was weird for me. It was hard for me to adjust, and I see value in both, but the reality is is that our family just had a different MO, a different mode of operating we had different ways of forming as a family. And this is true for all of our individual families, but it's also true for the church family. Every individual church has its own kind of formation, its own M.O. But in Scripture, and and we're going to see this over and over again, I'm glad you brought this out this morning, Linda, in the song that we sang about being sons and daughters, to kind of capitalize on this family language. It's all over in Scripture. I mean, one of the most common biblical metaphors for the church is the family of God, the household of God, the people of God. We are called brothers and sisters over and over again in Scripture. That's why our identity statement as a church is that we are sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice His commands, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim His gospel. See, we see all of our life, our Christian life and our church life, through the lens of family, You don't simply attend a church on a Sunday as an event, but you belong to a church as a family. And Jesus has given his family instructions on how we are to form. And so this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to look at four formative principles that Jesus gives his church, his church family, for how we are to operate, kind of our mode of operation, the standard way that we are to do life. There's four in this chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter Some of you feel like we've been moving pretty quickly through Matthew. We have. I'm trying to get to a certain place for Easter. And then I have some, I feel like God's asked us to do some other things after Easter as far as preaching and instructing our body. And so we're kind of following a certain pace to get to a certain place by Easter. But also, so it's a large chunk of scripture. We have a lot of work to do today. I'm not going to preach for too long, but we are going to dive into this passage and look at the entire chapter of Matthew 18. And while it's a large chunk of scripture I think it fits really well together and it shows us four formation principles or four formative principles for the church family. So if you are a part of a church, if you are here this morning, maybe you're just attending and we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're checking it out. Maybe you're from out of town, you're with family, maybe you're checking out churches. Regardless of who you are, where you're at, I encourage you to find a church near where you live and to plug into that church and to make that church your family. Because the commands of Jesus can only be lived out fully in that context. And so this morning, let's look at Matthew 18 and see how Jesus instructs his family to form. Four formation principles for the church family. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the entire chapter like I often do and then walk through it. I'm going to kind of read it chunk by chunk and look at the four principles as we go. So the first principle this morning is that the church family is entered with childlike faith and humility. That's key, that's essential for us to remember. As you think about the church of Jesus Christ, as you think about the church family, how is this family entered? It's not entered through the the lobby doors. I mean, that's how this event is entered. You enter the Sunday morning church gathering through the doors to the building, but how the family of God is entered, it's entered with childlike faith and humility, and Jesus teaches us this in verses one through four. So look at Matthew 18. Verse 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven see how pointed and direct that is jesus says whoever would enter the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven is is the rule and the reign of king jesus and king jesus through his scriptures we saw this in matthew 16 he forms his people he forms his kingdom into families into local churches Matthew 16, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, was the foundation of the church. So you can think of Matthew chapter 16 as the church's foundation and Matthew chapter 18 as the church's formation. The, for, the foundation is Jesus. It's Jesus himself. It's our confession of him as Christ and it's our daily expression of him as Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then the church is formed as we daily express Jesus as Lord, Jesus as king, Jesus as leader, Jesus as, as head. He's the foundation, and that we are formed by him as we express him in our daily life and as we form ourselves, as we conform ourselves to his will and his way. And he has said right here in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, that you enter this family with childlike faith and humility. You don't inherit it from your parents it's not given to you by, by living in a country where in, on the money it says in God we trust or we're a Christian nation, right? That's not how you enter the family of God. You enter the family of God with childlike faith and humility. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse before that, verse th- three, truly I say to you, unless you turn, turn is to repent. It's to, it's to turn away from your self-seeking ways to thinking you can do it on your own to, to saying, I, I, I turn, I repent, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, and so it's entered with childlike faith and humility. Now, it's not entered with childish faith, and those of you who are parents of young kids, you're probably thinking, like, what does childlike faith really mean? mean. Childishness is being unaware of others. It's being ignorant to what's going on around you. It's being distracted. It's insisting on what you want and doing things your own way. And any child will do this. I have three little kids, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a three, eight, six, and three-year-old. And they often want to do their own things their own way. They often insist on getting things done their way. And this is just childish behavior that, that Lord willing, hopefully they will grow out of over time, though I haven't fully grown out of it, so who knows. That's, that's childish behavior. All children have childish behavior, but Jesus here is cluing into not childish behavior, but childlike behavior, childlike faith. See, childish behavior is it, it's thinking you know it all or not being willing to learn and listen, and sometimes children deal with that, but children also have this, this unique ability this, this characteristic in them where they're eager to learn, where they're full of life, where they're teachable, where they're willing to accept help. Now, again, this is competing, right? Sometimes my children don't always want to accept help. In fact, my youngest three-year-old, Oakley, she pretty much thinks she can do everything on her own and she knows the right way to do it all. But there is this characteristic to children, especially an in infant. They're just helpless, right? I mean, parents, you're so tired because you have to do everything for another human being. They're fully dependent on you. You have to feed them. And then when that food moves through their body and processes, you have to clean that up. You have to put on their socks. You have to put on their clothes. You have to take off their clothes. You have to take off their socks. You have to bathe them. You have to strap them into a car seat. After you bundle on their coat and their gloves and their hat, and then they pull it off as you're working on the boots, the gloves are off, you have to re-put it back on. They are so needy and dependent on help. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Whoever would, would become dependent, whoever would say, God, I need you to dress me, to clothe me, to feed me, to pick up after me, to take care of my messes and to train me in righteousness. See parents, we don't just follow after our kids picking up after them. We do that, but along the way we ought to be teaching them responsibility. This is what faith is like. Coming to Jesus independent saying, "God, God, I'm like a child. I don't always choose the best food." I, like my son, would choose ice cream over broccoli any day. God, I, like that, spiritually speaking, I would choose Netflix over your word any day. Would you help me? Would you discipline me? Would you train me? Would you Teach me, and Jesus is saying, whoever comes to God with childlike faith, believing in this big Father who can do all things, and coming to him with dependence and humility, and saying, I I bow my knee in humility to you. Would you help me? Would you grow me up? I don't know where this quote from I saw it, and there wasn't a um it wasn't quoted. It just I it's not my own words, but it says, Childlike faith focuses on our Heavenly Father not our earthly fears. So to enter the family of God, we need this childlike faith that focuses on the greatness, the power, the glory of our heavenly Father, not focused on our earthly fears. Example of this in in my mind is that my children, for the last few months, they've been struggling to sleep through the night we we moved some rooms around and i don't know if that has to do with it i don't know if their grandpa passing away having cancer had something to do with that i'm not sure but but they they tend to at night focus on their earthly fears but what helps them is that they come into our bed and different parents have different philosophies on this brittany and i have different philosophies on this but we've kind of tried to work out some common ground and when our children sleep near us in our bed, they make it through the night just fine. If we hold the line and tell them to go to their own rooms, to their own bed, to give us space, to sleep on their own, they just, they're up all night and they're, they're fearful. They, in their own presence, in their own rooms, they're focused on their earthly circumstantial fears. But when they're in our presence, they sleep through the night like babies. In fact, last night I broke the news. I, I drove up from Sioux Falls speeding the whole way cuz I wanted to get to my parents house in time to tell my kids that their grandpa had passed away and I wanted to spend some time with them and they stayed the night at my parents last night so that I could get up this morning and get ready to preach and and, and I got there and I told them and we had some good time morning together and then my plan was to leave them there I would drive home sleep by myself and come to church this morning and they just said dad we want to come home with you we want to sleep by you and I said no cuz I need to get up in the morning and get ready but I will lay here next to you. And so I spent the night on my parents' floor next to my kids. I got up early and left them. I snuck up while they were still sleeping so I could do this. But, but they slept through the night. They made it through the night. Avery, I FaceTimed her this morning, and she said, Dad, I didn't wake up once last night. And that's an amazing thing. And the reality is because in my presence, their fears dissipated. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Whoever, whoever would come to, to God must come like a child eagerly wanting to be in his presence. And his presence removes, I don't know that it removes our fear, but it helps our fear to dissipate. And so childlike faith is focusing on our heavenly father, not our earthly fears. We enter the church family with childlike faith and humility. The second Principle, the family principle, family formation in this passage is that the church is a family where vulnerable people are protected by spiritual parents who imitate the Heavenly Father. The church is a family where vulnerable people are protected by spiritual parents who imitate the Heavenly Father. And, oh church, before we look at this passage, we're gonna look at verses five through seventeen. How I just want to apologize to any of you who have been hurt by a church who hasn't protected you and your vulnerability. Unfortunately, the church has a bad rap of not protecting the vulnerable, but taking advantage of the vulnerable. Whether that's embezzling money from people who are struggling with money or who are giving it in good faith, or whether that's taking advantage of kids or women or whatever it may be, the church at large has a terrible reputation because we're made up of people with a sin nature, but Jesus is making us anew. And so if you're somebody here today who's been hurt by a church I apologize on behalf of that church for what was done to you. That's not Jesus' way. The church is a family. This is Jesus' intent. We're going to see it from his own words here in just a minute. But Jesus' intent is for this to be a safe place, for this to be a safe family where you, in your greatest vulnerability, would be protected by spiritual parents who imitate the perfect Heavenly Father. Let's look at how Jesus talks about this here. Verses 5-14. through So verse five, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so specifically, he's talking about the vulnerability of children, right? Whoever receives a child, a child is vulnerable, especially in this culture and context. Children weren't like they were in our culture, where parents run them around to all these sports things, where kind of in our culture, children are often gods. Like, parents' schedules revolve around the children. In this culture, it wasn't so. Children were considered, like, kind of worthless. Like, just go and... Stay out of my way, be quiet, do your chores. There, there wasn't like youth sports leagues and, and chess clubs and whatever it may be to help the children explore all of their wants and interests and grow. Children were often just kind of put aside until they were old enough to help with the family chores and then they were used. And Jesus is saying, but whoever receives such a child, whoever receives a vulnerable person, And so specifically in the context here, it's applying to children, but I think we can apply that to anyone who's vulnerable in the context of the church, whether that's somebody who's recently been divorced or or through abuse or whatever it may be. They are to be able to enter the church family and, and feel safe. In your vulnerability, you ought to be protected. Jesus goes on, So whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives the vulnerable... But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, whoever's entering, entering the church family saying, Jesus is my king, I want to follow him. And when they enter that church family and they encounter somebody who causes them to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see what... What God, your Father, and Jesus, his representative, are saying to you? That this is to be a family where the vulnerable are protected. And anyone who feasts on the vulnerable in this family, they're going down. To the depths of the sea with a mill. it's serious business. Jesus says, I've created this place for the most vulnerable, the, the children to come and to be safe and to hear about Jesus and to explore their faith. For the vulnerable adults to come and to be safe and to be taught about Jesus. And anybody who feasts on the vulnerable, they've got judgment and justice coming for them. And so be careful, church family. And, and if you're somebody who has taken advantage of somebody who's vulnerable, there's forgiveness for you. And Jesus is going to go on to talk about forgiveness. But what we need to know as we, before we get into forgiveness is that Jesus has the standard. My family is a safe place. And anybody who feasts on the vulnerable, there is justice and judgment awaiting them. And he goes on, verse 7. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. See that? We, we live in this world with, there's no way to avoid temptation. There's temptation all around us, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. This is to be a safe place where where the vulnerable are protected, not feasted on, and it's to be a safe place where we're not creating a culture of sin. Jesus is saying that that whoever causes others to sin, that there's there's a certain way to do life. We're all sinners by nature and choice. That's why we come to the foot of the cross and we receive God's forgiveness, but Jesus is saying that there's there's a certain type of person who who plays with sin. Who practices sin, who endorses sin, who creates a culture of sinful acceptance, and they're the ones who cause other people to sin and woe to that person. Verse eight, and if your hand, and then he gets severe, like if you're dealing with sin, and if that sin that you're dealing with, I mean, you deal with that with God and in community, repent, confess, be vulnerable, bring it out, and in your vulnerability, church family, if you're in a community group setting or with a group of friends and somebody's being vulnerable, it's not your job to feast on that vulnerability, it's your job to... to remind them of the gospel identity that they're forgiven and it says here in verse 8 anyone who then is kind of creating a culture of sin and causing others to sin woe to that person but he's also saying to be harsh with sin verse 8 and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to, than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two to be thrown into the hell of fire. See the, see the severity in which Jesus is saying we need to deal with sin in the church family? He, he's not literally saying cut off your hand, gouge out your eyes. The disciples didn't do that. and, and there's, that's not, He's using a figure of speech. He's saying this is how serious you need to be with your sin. John Owen a Puritan pastor said, be killing sin or it be killing you. And that's the attitude here that we're to have with sin, that, that we treat it severely, that, that we consider it in our own lives and also in our, in our community. So when somebody's dealing with sin in your community, you don't, you don't just pass it off and say, "Ah, yeah, we all struggle with that. You graciously say, thank you for confessing, now let's get after it. How do we tack that together? How can I help you? I'm tempted in that same way. How can can we help each other rise above and apply the gospel and overcome our sin and be a safe place for other people dealing with that sin? Keep going. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, he comes back to the vulnerable. And so this is to be a place where vulnerable are accepted, where they're protected, where sin is dealt with, not where it's allowed to fester and to grow and kind of Create a culture of sin acceptance. Verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that, he, that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. See the the heart that God has there for the vulnerable, for the weak, for the lost, for the strained sheep. Jesus is saying that's this family. This family, we are the representatives of Jesus to the world and so we are a safe place who accepts the vulnerable we, we treat sin seriously and severely so that we can be a safe place for vulnerable people. And then when those vulnerable people run back to their own habits, when they go astray, we go and we call them back in. We imitate the Heavenly Father as spiritual parents. The church is to be a place where people are growing in Christ-like maturity as parents who can shepherd the flock, who can, who can welcome the broken in and say, we're here to love you to care for you, to walk through this addiction with you, to walk through this pain with you, to walk through this brokenness with you. And in doing that, we imitate the Father. As you enter a church family and you think about who to trust, who to follow, who to listen to, look for those who seem like spiritual parents who are imitating the Heavenly Father. And get to know them, build some trust. This church is full of spiritual parents who imitate the Heavenly Father. Thank you, church family, for being that. I've experienced that myself as your pastor. I'm not like the top dog spiritual parent. Oftentimes people think about that in the, the, as like, the pastor of the church, right? Like he's kind of the bishop of all spiritual things, right? And the spiritually mature one. I don't feel that way at all. I feel like some little boy who's trying to figure life out. And I'm in a church family that's full of spiritual parents who love me and my wife, Brittany, and my family, and who imitate the Heavenly Father by saying, hey, are you sure you should preach this week? Maybe you should be down with your family. Thank you for checking. No, this is good. This is where we're supposed to be. Hey, take some time off. Hey, do this. this." We're full of spiritual parents, so if you're newer here, get to know some people. There's people who can be trusted here. I praise God for having a safe place and that's not to say, let your guard down and trust anyone and everyone, right? Trust takes time to build, and so I encourage you to do that. Third, let's keep moving here. The third formation principle is that the church family is a family where conflict is resolved like mature adults rather than immature children. And how many of you have been in churches where conflict was not resolved like mature adults, rather it was dealt with like immature children? If you've been around church for any length of time, I know that you've experienced the immaturity of people in the church. This isn't Jesus' heart or intent. So if you've been hurt by a church bickering and a church not knowing how to resolve conflict, that's the church's issue. That's not Jesus' issue. You can have a problem with the church. Don't discard your Christ because your Christ has a different vision for the church. And it's not to gossip and bicker and to talk. Like when I have a problem with Ben, which I never do, I don't talk to Mark about it. Ben probably has problems with me because I'm hard to work with. Ben's so easy to work with. But, but if I have a problem with Ben, if Ben has a problem with me, we go, we go to each other. This is what Jesus is going to say. It's, you don't talk to this person about your problem with that person. Jesus has a pattern. He tells us how to deal with conflict. He loves his family. He, he knows how to form his family to function for his glory, our good, and the advancement of his gospel. And he tells us, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, is that going to happen? Are you ever going to have a brother or a sister who sins against you? And he's not speaking specifically of blood brothers here. This is the church family. Over and over again, the scripture refer referred to us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is a spiritual brother, spiritual sister. How many of you have been sinned against or offended or hurt by a brother or sister in the church? Oh, come on. Put your hand up. If you haven't been, you've been church hopping too long. Stick around for a while. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, it will happen. Frustration comes from unmet expectations. So as you join a church, have the expectation that people are going to offend me, people are going to wrong me, people are going to sin against me, and I'm going to do that to them as well. Because we, are, we, we have this fleshly nature that likes to rear its ugly head. And so if your brother sins against you, it's going to happen. What do you do? Conflict in the church. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Again, it doesn't say, if I sin against Ben, that Ben goes and talks to Mark about it. Ben comes to me. Vice versa, if you sin against you, you don't got to go talk to her about it. You figure it out, one-on-one. Now, Jesus has already said in, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, before you take the log out of your brother's eye, take the speck out of your own eye, Right? Matthew chapter 7, we we talked about that probably a year ago because we were going at a snail's pace through Matthew. So Jesus has given us this pattern. He doesn't say, well, if anyone has offended you, just walk around telling them their faults. He's already told us that before you tell somebody else their fault, you need to do some serious self-examination. What's the log in my own eye? I think I said it wrong. It's a speck in their eye and a log in your own eye. So you need to consider your own offense what have I done? How have I contributed to this conflict? How have I wronged them? God, make me right with you. Make me right with them. What do I do? What, what's my fault? God, forgive me and, and help me to walk in peace and loving and kindness. And then go to them and say, hey, you did this to me and it was wrong. You said this and it offended me. You, you did this and you go to the person. Jesus is a pathway for how we deal with conflict. This is his formation of his family, his mode of operation. You go directly to the person. So, church, family, it's time to grow up. If you have a problem with somebody, grow up and go to that person and say, hey, I have a lack of peace about our relationship. Here's why. Can we work through that together? So, Jesus says, step one, go to the person. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What an amazing picture! I've experienced this a few times where where there's been conflict and you go to one another and in marriage this happens like hourly and you go and you're like, hey, I offended you I'm sure in 99 ways and you did this one little thing and then they're like, you're right, I did that one little thing and you did that 99 and then you're like, great, we're at peace. If they listen, you have gained your brother, the relationship has been restored, conflict has been resolved. Praise the Lord. Verse 16 continues on. If that doesn't work, that's the first step. Go one-on-one. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is, you go to the person and there's no acknowledgement of their offense, of their sin, of their hurt. Then you go to a couple trusted friends and say, this person has offended me. I've gone to them. They haven't listened. It's not working. We need some help. Can you come and mediate this conversation? And then you go and, and you work on that. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And so then if that doesn't work, and you're in this, this is in the context of a church family, don't apply this at work. Don't bring your co-workers to church and say, hey, we need the elders' help to figure the situation out. Right? Follow this pattern, follow this path at work, but this is specifically for the church family now. When you get to this point, you bring it to the church leadership, bring it to the elders. That's why we're here and say, hey, we're having this conflict. I've been sinned against. The vulnerable place that we're supposed to be, it's been broken. My trust has been violated. I need some help. And so, then the church elders will figure this out and and if it gets to the point where it's bad enough, it may have to be told to the congregation, hey, so-and-so has been asked to not attend here for a while because of these things and they haven't admitted to it. They're not repenting of it. They haven't worked through it. That's the pattern. And that's the last resort. That's way down the line. It's not like as a pastor and elder. we're not When we have elder meetings, we're not sitting around like, who do we get to kick out of the church today? Who do we get to tell everybody that they're not living in reconciliation and repentance? That's the last thing we ever want to do. But so the pattern is one-on-one. If that doesn't work, a couple trusted friends, small conversation. If that doesn't work, bring it to the elder team and we'll help you navigate that next step. Then Jesus says, continuing in verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That's as, as an unbeliever. Saying because you're not willing to apply Jesus' commands, because you're not forming your life in this church into the way of Jesus, we're treating you as though you're not part of the family. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is witness; He's present in these situations when we follow his pattern, when we apply his wisdom. And so principle number three, church family if you're here this morning, please just hear me asking you, not me asking you, Jesus telling you, let's go that route. I'm not asking you to do anything, I'm telling you what Jesus expects of you. When somebody offends you, go to them one on one, try to work it out. Can you imagine the safe place this would be if we all did that? Could you imagine how you could transform your workplace if you didn't gossip about your coworker to the other coworkers? Or if when they gossip to you about your coworker, you're like, you know, I think you should go talk to them about that. I think that's the best question. If you hear somebody gossiping or talking about somebody, to just respond, have you talked to him or her about that? It shuts it down very quickly. So I ask you to do that. I don't ask you to do it. Jesus tells you to do it. Do it. Right? That's better than me asking you to do it, isn't it? Jesus is our Father. Well, God's our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. This is what he expects. Fourth principle. We're going to keep moving. We can do this. All right. Fourth principle, the church is a family that forgives like God because we've been forgiven like God. And we have to fit this principle in because this kind of brings it all together. This is the church. It's a place of forgiveness. And so if you have taken advantage of the vulnerable, if you've been the vulnerable who's been taken advantage of, Jesus here is setting out this pathway for forgiveness. And it's not saying that, that we just discard everything. Sometimes true forgiveness means having boundaries, having limits, saying no to this person, no to that person, and, and creating some safe places. That's what Jesus is getting at here. But he's saying ultimately the church is to be a family that forgives. Why? What's our basis for forgiveness? It's that we've been forgiven forgiven by God. And so let me read this last section here, verse 21 through 35. And then Peter came up to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. Now the Jewish pattern for forgiveness was three. Kind of their culture, their custom was you forgive three times and then after that you just, you cannot forgive them. You can move on because clearly they're not going to change. So Jesus... Peter thinks he's one-upping the Jewish religious system. He doesn't say three, he says seven. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. This isn't a mathematical equation where Jesus is actually saying forgive somebody 490 times. He's using these these words, seven is the pattern of completeness or wholeness. God created the world in seven days and 70 is symbolic of Israel's elders. And so he's saying as much as the the leaders and the perfect creation of God, that times that, it's a metaphor for ongoing forgiveness, complete, whole, certain forgiveness. He's not saying keep a tally, when you hit 491, you're done. He's saying forgive always, always he gives this parable to us. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is an unpayable debt. This is like $6 billion in our modern economy. So like Jeff Bezos can actually do this, but none of you can. $6 billion worth and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything and out of pity for him. I don't like the word uh, pity, the translation pity there, because in our, in our culture, pity is like, oh, there, there, I have pity on you. This, it means compassion. It means this heartfelt desire of compassion and change and, and wanting to see reconciliation happen out of compassion, out of pity, out of, out of this heart of love for this person. The master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, and he said to him, you wicked servant, here's the key, we forgive because God has forgiven us. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, because you came to me like a child dependent on me to forgive you. You had a debt that was unable to be paid. You come to child." Come to God like a child, ask for forgiveness, ask for him to make payment on your behalf, and he does it. He says, So you came, I forgave you all of your debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is a family of forgiveness. That's Jesus' expectation that you and I were, would forgive one another the same way that God has forgiven us. He wants us to be, to be a, a river of forgiveness, not a pond, like a stagnant, stale, shut-up water that has no outlet. Or like a cul-de-sac where you drive around and it's like, oh, all these houses are the same and back out. No, like a, like a road through the mountains. God forgives us so we could spend eternal life with him, we could be right with him, and then as we're forgiven by God, we extend that forgiveness to others. God is using us to be his grace, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness to the world. So the church is to be a family where people taste and see that the Lord is good as they're forgiven of the most heinous of things and the most severe of offenses and the most repeated annoyances. As we close this morning, consider Ephesians 4.32. Paul wraps it up and he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so, individual. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a son or daughter of God, your heavenly Father. Your heavenly father has given you the formation for joining his family. You've come in childlike faith. He says, that's the, the entrance. That's how you get in this family. It's a great family to be in. What other family does this? It's a great family to be in. If you're vulnerable, you're safe. You're protected. You're, you're shepherded. You're, you're raised up by spiritual parents who are imitating God. You're not gossiped about and you're not gossiping. You're safe. When you wrong somebody, they come to you. When somebody wrongs you, you go to them and you don't have to worry or be afraid because this is the expectation, this is the norm. And then you forgive one another in this amazing supernatural way because God has forgiven you. Let's pray. Jesus, may you empower us this morning to be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Lord, I thank you for this family. I thank you that Brittany and I, and Avery and Judah and Oakley, have found a safe place to be vulnerable, that we found spiritual parents who love us like the Heavenly Father, that we found a place of deep forgiveness. And that all hinges on you, the cornerstone, the foundation. Lord, I pray that all of us here this morning would be people who are transformed by the person of Christ, that we would become more and more like you, that we would live with childlike faith, that we would work to create a safe place and to be spiritual parents who are loving the vulnerable, that we would deal with our conflicts in a godly way and that we would forgive and forgive again and forgive again and forgive again. Make this so in us, Lord Jesus. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray.